Caleb, can I ask you to pray? Amen. Thanks, Caleb. Okay, so last week we looked at what was attached to footnote number one, and so we want to pick up from there. So God has granted that all those who are justified would receive the grace of adoption in and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ. And then, by this, they are counted among the children of God and enjoy the freedom and privileges of that relationship. And so who wants to read John 1, verse 12? Have a volunteer for that. Jeremy, who wants to read Romans 8, 17? Howard. Okay, so John 1, 12. Go ahead, Jeremy. Okay. This verse is some, something I allude to periodically, especially because there is a certain way of thinking that became pervasive in the 1920s especially as the mainline Christian denominations moved into theological liberalism. There was this concept of the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. Charlie Pride sings about it. I've mentioned that too. We're all, God we're all God's children, his next of kin, no matter where you're going or where you've been. You're part of the family of God. And I do not want to get into a tilt with Charlie Pride because I love his music. But the Apostle John says that Charlie Pride is absolutely wrong. We are not <laughs> all God's children. There is not a universal brotherhood of men. Who did we just read are God's children? Those who believe. Those who believe. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So all people are made in the image of God. All people are creations of God. But not all people can say God is my father. Okay? God exists either as your father or as your judge. It is one of those, depending on which side of the gospel you are on, which side of Christ you are on. But that old mainline notion that we are all God's children, the universal fatherhood of God, the universal brotherhood of man, is just plain wrong. An unbeliever uh, cannot expect to call God his father. He cannot expect his prayers to be heard by God. God says he hates those prayers. He refuses to listen. God even says he doesn't listen to the prayers of men who are in the church who treat their wives poorly. Peter says God just stuffs his ears. If you are mistreating your wife, if you are being heavy-handed with your wife, God says, I'm not listening to your prayers. I refuse to listen to you. How much more to outright unbelievers? And I'll maybe stop there because this pushes back against a very common notion that we're all God's children. And we've discussed this before, but I'm curious for discussion on that or your, your perception of this, how prevalent is this view? Um, am I sounding like a, I'm overstating this? Can you see it in the text? 
First of all, how prevalent is this view that everyone is God's child? Is that a prevalent view? You see that? See that lots? No? Okay. Tim says world scope, probably lots of, it's probably a prevalent view, but in the church less so. And I would hope we have an understanding of John's gospel in the church. Does it sound like, uh, does it sound jolting to hear that not everyone is your brother and sister? Not everyone is God's child. Does that sound jarring? Or does that just make sense in light of what the gospel does in the world? Yeah, because when people hear, when people see or hear something like that, it's easy to, because there is a sense in which God does love creation generally, right? But then there's a special sense in which he loves his children in particular. That's right. But I think what, what gets communicated or what can get communicated if we're not careful in the way we're thinking about this is, oh, so I'm good with God. So my sin doesn't need to be addressed, right? He gets me. So I can just keep doing whatever I want to do, right? Yeah? Keith? Okay, Ron, yeah, sorry, I didn't repeat. Ron, Ron basically said, yes, it makes sense. The Bible teaches everyone's made in the image of God. An atheist is in the image of God. A Muslim is in the image of God. But that doesn't mean we're brothers in the family of God, so to speak. That's w- that was Ron's point. Right, so Keith is saying sometimes in evangelism or in apologetics, we want to find as much common ground as we can with an unbeliever and and start treating them like they're in the family of God, even if they haven't taken that step of faith yet, perhaps, right? Yeah. Caleb. Yeah, that's right. And I think it might have even just been last Sunday school talked about, does God forgive unconditionally? And the answer is no. Absolutely not. God does not forgive unconditionally. If God forgave unconditionally, that would mean there are no conditions on which God forgives. QED, every every man, woman, and child who has ever lived is forgiven and on their way to heaven. Not true. The condition of forgiveness is repentance and faith. Okay? Now, in his grace, God also supplies us with that condition, so it is still all of grace. Just because there's a condition doesn't mean it's a form of self-righteousness. I always use the analogy, it's like dad giving his kid 20 bucks 
so that the kid can go to the store and buy a Christmas gift for mom and dad. There's a condition that money has to be paid, but it's dad's money. The kid, he's just involving the kid in this process of it coming back to dad. God gives the gift of faith. God gives the gift of repentance, but we, we must go through that in order uh, to be reconciled back to God, to have our sins forgiven. Otherwise, we end up in universalism. Jeremy. Okay, flesh that out a little more. Right, okay, like that, got you, yes. Nope, fair enough. Romans 8.17, Howard, did you have that? Okay, so this gets us deeper into the heart of the gospel again. If, if we are children of God, if we have been adopted into his family, that means that our union with Christ, and I sometimes feel like I'm just on the verge of getting this and then it just slips away again. But union with Christ is absolutely central. That means when Christ died... Kenan died. The old Kenan was crucified in the 30s AD. Okay? Nathan Cron died. The old Nathan died in the 30s. I died. When Christ dies, all who are united to him die. We go down into the grave, and when Christ is resurrected, the new man comes out. The new Howard came out of the grave. We are truly covenantally united to Christ so that whatever Christ's actions are, when you have been adopted into the family of God, everything that Christ won is now yours. It says we inherit that now. So all the obedience that Christ performed is put on you so that when you stand at God's judgment seat, all he sees is perfect, pure, holy righteousness. He sees someone who kept every condition of every covenant God has ever made and who is perfectly sinless. Not because that's the way your life looked, but because Christ has covered you with that. The old you dies when Christ dies. The new you is resurrected when Christ is resurrected. And that is a truth. I I just, I can kind of explain it. But that union, how Christ's actions are your actions by imputation is a glorious, glorious thing. And baptism symbolizes that. Baptism is a representation of going down. You drowned. You're dead. There is no more Matt Plett who was an Adam. That guy died. God killed him out of a sheer act of mercy. God killed that guy, and then he put a new Matt Plett out of the grave. That's dramatized when we baptize people. And it's a profound truth. And I want to stop there again. Because I, I feel for myself, I never, there's always another aspect of union with Christ and of this covenantal headship, this federal headship that I feel like I'm always just on the verge of seeing a little bit more and I'm never quite getting there. But I'm curious about that. Union with Christ. Do we see how pivotal this is? How key this is when we think about adoption? being part of God's family.
don't bring him down. He came down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and don't get me wrong. I despise Jesus is my girlfriend music as much as anyone. I, I despise it because it paints an unbiblical, romantic, sloppy, wet kiss Jesus, which is nowhere present in Scripture. God's love is not reckless. <laughs> it's holy. Okay? So I hope I ruined that song for you. I hope I ruined reckless love for everyone and I don't feel the least bit of guilt. I'll sleep like a rat tonight if you can't ever listen to that song with a smile on your face again. So, that's... See, my sister was right. I don't have... (laughs) And yet, what is the incarnation other than God becoming a man? In today's text, in the transfiguration... The prophets and the apostles are blinded by the refulgent glory of Christ and they're on the ground. Please make it stop. And Jesus touches them. He says, don't be afraid. God's not your judge. God's your father now. Can you see that Jesus in scripture? Because the same Jesus who kills Herod on the spot and gets worms to destroy his rotting carcass, that same Jesus is your older brother. He does touch you. He does say, come with me. I have access to the throne room of God and you have permission to come with me. Because I'm the older brother and I will take you guys with me. It's the same Jesus. The same Jesus who floods the earth and Noah is just told to persevere as nursing mothers are banging at the door, let me in, let me in, and it's too late. And it pleases God to kill them. Is the same God who forgives David for his adultery and his murder and says, you are a man after my own heart. It's the same God. We have to, we have to have a conception For both the transcendence, the power, the majesty, the supremacy, the sovereignty of God, and also the tender intimacy of Jesus Christ. They're both real. They're both true. And probably all of us will struggle with some degree of that. We we tend to prefer the closeness of Jesus, or we tend to prefer the transcendence of him. But they're both presented in Scripture. Don. Because our brains only weigh three pounds and because our hearts are still clouded with sin and because we don't even use the full three pounds in our brain, it's hard, no, I would say it's impossible for us to see God or to conceptualize God the way he is, which is why we get all these different pictures that help create, right? 
Jesus is our husband. Jesus is our older brother. Jesus is a sacrificial lamb. Jesus is a conquering king. Jesus is a head crusher. Jesus hates his enemies. Jesus loves his friends. Jesus is the prince of peace. Jesus is a man of war. What? This isn't meant to drive us into madness or schizophrenia. We need to see different angles, and we always need to stay in the bounds. You know, if you push the brother element all the way, it doesn't work with the husband element because you shouldn't marry your brother, actually, right? But these are symbols to help us conceptualize. Here's how Jesus is like a brother. Here's how Jesus is like a husband. Here's how Jesus is a head-crushing king who hates those who oppose him and will crush their knees into powder if they don't bend the knee. And yet for those who do bend the knee, he touches them and says, you're my little brother, come. It's all true. It's all true. And as a point of pastoral thinking here, how much do we struggle with that? How much do we prefer the transcendent power of Christ and how much do we prefer the intimate closeness and imminence of Christ? Do we tend to prefer one of those two pictures without seeing Christ in his fullness, without seeing God in his fullness? Yeah, so Keith is saying, and this is important, when God uses pictures of human relationships, it's not like we get to define what those relationships are, and then God says, cool, I'll use that as a picture. God knows, first of all, who he is. God knows, first of all, what his plans for the cosmos are. And then he says, okay, here's my plan for the cosmos. Now I am going to create man and woman. I am going to create marriage. So that these people can start to see a cosmic truth in their homes every day. How a husband protects and cares for his wife and how a wife submits and obeys her husband. That's what marriage is. It's not that God uh, sees, oh, people invented marriage. This is what Keith is saying, if I'm understanding you right. It's not that, oh, these people invented marriage. And that's kind of cool because this is, you won't believe this, guys. (laughs) That's kind of like my plan to save the people of the earth. So I'm going to make that connection in the... No, no, no. Prior, God says, I will save these people for myself. And then his next step in logic is, therefore I will create marriage so they can start to get a taste in their lived experience for how this ought to work. So God, we are made in God's image and we frequently try to get it backwards and remake God in our image. And that is exactly opposite. God's not me with 30 times the strength, okay? God's not Carter Thiessen with 10 times the height, okay? <laughs> okay. He, he's, he's not that. He's God. He's God. He's not man times 10,000. He's God. Did you have more, Keith? Okay. 
Keith, you're still not getting it. <laughs> too, too soon, yeah. Wait till next Super Bowl. Yeah, okay. Anything else on this? Ron. the same time. So Ron's asking a question. So we're on this side of Jesus' death and resurrection. So it's maybe easier for us to see how we, how future people died and were made alive with Christ's death and resurrection. And Ron's asking, what about the Old Testament saints? Am I understanding correctly? Okay, so what about the Old Testament saints? When were they spiritually killed and resurrected? Remember, Jesus hasn't come yet. When did the old Abram die so that Abraham could be made alive? When did Jacob die so that Israel could be born? When did that happen? When Christ died. Yeah. Audrey caught something important. Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. They're saved on a line of credit. I don't know about your farm. My farm needs a line of credit periodically. And by periodically, I mean every day for 17 years. So <laughs> that means I'm always spending next month's milk check because the bills come in. Okay? And, and a line of credit says I have access to something that's not there yet. But it is on the way. On the 15th of the month, the milk check will come. But I need to pay my feed bill on the 1st of the month. Okay? Old Testament salvation works that way. The money has not yet been put in the bank. Okay, so Christ's uh, transaction with the Father has not yet happened. But it is on the way. So it's still counted previous to them. Okay, it says in the New Testament that the times of ignorance God overlooked. Right, he's patient. He's waiting for this transaction to take place. But he's already crediting that to these Old Testament saints on the promise, but then the substance comes and now that, that payment is actually transacted. So they get it by promise, we get it by substance, but it's the same, it's the same exact transaction between the Father and the Son that makes it happen. Does that make sense? Am I explaining that in a helpful way? Even if using money is a little bit crass, but I, my brain works in word pictures. If yours doesn't, that's fine too. Was there a hand back there? No? Okay, then we'll go uh, Caleb, Jeremy, Don. Or Don, no, Don was first. Don, Caleb. Yeah. Yeah, it does. So God... Don's mentioning that God doesn't inhabit time in the same way that we do. And so there's an element of this in God's operation of thoughts. When we talk about the order of God's thoughts, what we're talking about is a logical order, not chronological. Right? Because God, this is a hard concept to understand, but it makes a lot of hard doctrines very, very simple if you think about it 
in terms of God's sovereignty, time, eternity, is to think this way. When God created out of nothing, what was there right before creation? Nothing. Nothing. Okay? So you've got God by himself. There's nothing. There's just God. And then he starts speaking and things come into being, ex nihilo, which just means out of nothing. So God says, let there be light. The lights come on. Okay? Now, did God have to audibly utter that, or did he just decree it? It says he spoke, and maybe he did. But I think this can just be God thought the thought, and it comes to be. And because everyone in this room and in human history is a creation of God... And because God's mind knows everything, that means God does not think sequential thoughts like we do. God thinks one thought. One singular thought, and that contains every detail, every fact, every event in all of human history, and every person who has ever lived, is one coherent thought to God. Which is humbling, because that means we exist as God's thoughts. Okay? I'm not a mystic, I don't believe this isn't a real world. This world exists in God's imagination. Okay? God thinks it, and here it is. And the minute God would quit thinking that thought, it would implode back into chaos and nothingness. We exist as God's thought. This is part of his decree, and it's one coherent decree, which means, to Don's point, when we talk about, well, God decreed this, and then he decreed this. We're only talking in terms of logical order from our vantage point, the way things relate to each other. But it's not like on day one, God decided on light. (laughs) And then he decided on these animals. And then he, no, no. This thought was always there. He's thinking it into existence, and it's coherent in his view. And that should also help us with the objections about, well, what about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? God's not in the system with us. God's not the white ball that hits the purple ball and his sovereignty works with force. That's not how it works. God wrote the story and he wrote you into the story. So everything you do, have thought, is exactly you and every last detail, even the sin, is exactly as God decreed it. And God didn't push you to sin, he didn't force you to sin. Because God's not in the system with you. He's not the biggest thing in the system pushing his creatures around. He's the guy that made the system and he exists outside of it. It exists in his mind. All problems are resolved. Okay? When an author writes a story and a character gives a speech, who is it? Is it Macbeth or is it Shakespeare? And the answer, of course, is yes, correct. Okay? It's 100% Macbeth and 100% Shakespeare, because Shakespeare's not in the story. It is his story. (laughs) He can do whatever he pleases with the characters, no harm done to the will of the creature whatsoever, because we exist out of nothing as God's thoughts. All objections resolved. If we see that we're made in the image of God, if we keep doing our puny little brain stuff, as though I want to make God in my image, while I'm like this, here's my sense of justice, God must share that with me, therefore I'm going to project my sense of justice or love or wrath or holiness on God backwards. God's world, God's rules. Love is what God says it is. 
Okay? And if you call something love that God says is not love, guess what? It's not love. God's world, God's rules, all the time. And this, ordering this right helps to resolve so many problems that we run into when we put ourselves first. And I got fired up and lost my train here. Who was next? Caleb. That's right. Yeah, so you, Caleb's talking about well, what happened to these Old Testament saints, and we've discussed it at Men's Theology Night, maybe here, less so here, but we have discussed it at Men's Theology Night. Basically, Hades or Sheol in the Old Testament is a bit of a different conception of what we think of of heaven and hell. It is a waiting room. Okay? Everybody goes to Sheol. David goes to Sheol just like all the wicked kings do. They all go down into the grave, and we see in Jesus' story, Lazarus and the rich man, there seems to be a righteous part, Abram's bosom, and there's a, a judgment part for the unrighteous, Tartarus or the nether gloom. Uh, Peter talks about it as those who are in prison in chains of doomy glo- uh, gloomy darkness in Peter. Um, and at the resurrection of Christ, I do believe that Abram's bosom breaks out and moves to what we currently call heaven. But the final heaven and the final lake of fire are not present realities. Nobody's in hell right now. People are in Hades, and we might call it hell in our conception. But what's the last thing that happens at the final judgment? God takes Hades and dumps it out into the lake of fire. Death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. The new creation is a future reality, and the lake of fire is a future reality. Nobody's in heaven yet, and nobody's in hell yet. They're in the presence of the Lord, they're in paradise, they're in Hades, they're in Sheol, they're waiting, but the final judgment has not yet happened. So there's a present uh, taste of that, but the final reality, no one's in hell yet. And they're gnawing their tongues in anguish and saying, it gets worse than this, and Jesus says, yes, much worse. When I turn this thing upside down into the lake of fire, it will be much worse, and heaven will be much better then my disembodied grandpa is in the presence of the Lord. It's warm. It's pleasant. We know very little about the intermediate state. My grandpa's there. It's good. But he's still in the very unnatural and temporary condition of his body's in a grave in Lamarck, Manitoba, and, and his soul is in the presence of the Lord. And that's an unnatural, temporary problem. When Christ returns, grandpa's soul comes with him. Grandpa's body gets revived, comes out of the ground. This world is made new. That's heaven. That's the final chapter. Solid, physical, embodied existence on this creation. God didn't scrap this creation. He's making all things new. He's restoring paradise. So to go with popular references, the pop artist Tiffany was correct. Heaven is a place on earth. Okay. Okay. Wasn't that Tiffany? Who was it? Belinda Carla, oh, I better quit making pop references. Yeah. Y- 
Yeah, so, okay. See, this is why Sunday school is great. We're nowhere even remotely close to adoption anymore. So, <laughs> annihilationism is the doctrine that says this, and it's being taught in evangelical circles. So, I mentioned it. Be aware of this. It's a short drive to Steinbeck, and you'll see a large segment of evangelicals hold to this doctrine now. Uh, annihilationism would say that human souls are not eternal. So uh, they come into existence, and they're all going to die. The soul itself is going to die. Um, and so when Christians receive eternal life, that's not just eternal glorified life. That means our soul goes from the status of being uh, finite to being infinite. And when unbelievers die, all that happens is they get evaporated out of existence. There is no spirit life after their death. Okay, so that's how they understand it. All souls are going to die. They're just annihilated. They're out of existence. They experience nothing after death. And as a Christian, you get eternal life. So you will live on after your death, but unbelievers are just taken out of existence. What's that? That, it's very convenient. Uh, some of them who try to be a little bit more honest, some of them try to be a little more honest about it, and they will say, no, I do believe in hell. Well, more honest or more deceptive, I don't know. I do believe in hell. But here's what hell is. It's essentially, it's almost a Catholic view of purgatory. Okay, so the Bible does seem to talk about judgment after death. So some annihilationists and this is the brand that's popular in Steinbeck, some annihilationists would say, yes, your soul lives on in the afterlife until it has been sufficiently punished for its sins and then out of existence. So in their mind, they're saying, see, I do believe in hell. Hell exists until these souls have paid their debt and then they're taken out of existence. Several problems with that. The exact same words for everlasting life and everlasting torment come from the mouth of Jesus. He doesn't use different words. <laughs> if one reality is everlasting, so is the other. Problem two, three, four, five, and six are theological problems. If a soul can pay its own debt in hell, why would God not show it mercy and say, well, you've paid off your debt. Why not transfer it to heaven rather than exterminate it? The debt's paid off. Why would God do this incredible injustice of exterminating that soul when he could send it to heaven? There's no more guilt anymore. Well, there's... <laughs> one may fairly ask that. So Tina's asking, what's the point of paying off this debt if you just get taken out of existence anyway? Another problem. That says that humans are capable of paying off our debt. Contrary to everything in the gospel, yes, we can pay our debt. What utter blasphemy. What utter blasphemy. This is such an antichrist doctrine that I don't know how any genuine Christian can hold to it. It's, it just undercuts every foundation of the gospel itself. So if we can make satisfaction, it's saying, yes, man can make satisfaction to God. And then we get taken out of existence. And then there's another problem. When you think of the way the Bible describes hell, do you see people in the lake of fire 
in hell with a sudden softness and repentant spirit that they want to pay it off? Every day they exist, they are accruing more guilt because their white-hot hatred of God gets worse every day. It's described, they're, they're gnawing their tongue in anguish, crying for rocks to crush their head. Make it stop. And they look at the clock, and they've been there for 10,000 years, and not one second has dropped on the clock. Every day, they hate God. Every day, they're shaking their fist at God, accruing more and more debt. And that's exactly why the Bible says hell must be eternal. Because these people do not repent. Their hatred of God grows every day. Their guilt gets longer every day. The things that they're in hell for gets longer every day. God's wrath must be eternal. And for the saints in heaven to feel vindicated and to see that justice has been done, God's justice must be eternally before their eyes that they say, yes, this is good. Okay? This is good. God is just. God does not let child rapists off the hook. God does not let murderers off the hook if they do not repent. So annihilationism, as much as it has made inroads in evangelical circles, is not orthodox. And I'm not saying anyone who holds it is automatically not a Christian, but honestly, I don't know how a Bible-believing Christian can go for that business. Because you just think about it for 10 minutes, and the gospel just completely gets unraveled. Everything about the holiness of Christ the freeness of grace, the grace of grace, the fact that man cannot pay his debt, it's all undone. That cannot be the way. Right. Well, I think you just explained it. Yes, so, and that's actually going to be because Stu left me with the time reference verse. I didn't know he was going to do that because he soon realized that's a sermon all by itself. And if I hadn't worked the preaching schedule out, I would have just preached on that one verse today, but we'll have to wait. But yes, when the Bible talks about destruction, it does not mean annihilation. This world has been destroyed many times. There have been many worlds that have existed on this planet, okay? Uh, the pre-fall world was a world on this planet that was destroyed by sin. Was the planet annihilated or turned into vapor? No, it wasn't. Everything looks the same. Sun came up the next morning, but that world is gone. And it says in Peter uh, that in the days of Noah, the world that then existed... So the world before the flood is a different world than the one we live in. Same planet. God didn't annihilate it. Destruction didn't mean annihilation. Destruction means that old system, that old form of cosmic governance is gone. It's fallen away and we're in a new uh, era with a new covenant, new heads of this covenant, new things happening in redemptive history. So this world has died many, many times. We know that there's a final death for this world and a final rebirth for this world that gets consummated when Christ returns. Um, but destruction language uh, does not mean annihilation in the Bible. There's always a continuity that happens even through destruction. It's referring to cosmic governance, the, the rules and the laws and the spiritual principalities at play 
in that old world, Noah's world is gone. Noah was born in one world, stepped out of that world into the ark, lived in the ark, stepped out of the ark and into a brand new world that he had never seen before. That's how this works. But the planet was never annihilated. And if that's, we've discussed it before, but Peter talks that way, I believe in 1 Peter 3, 6 through 10, maybe something like that. There is a succession of worlds with continuity all the way through, which is why I don't think the popular conception of heaven that it's a floaty place in the clouds, I, I don't think that fits the biblical cosmology because new heavens, new earth always mean here. New governance, new system, new cosmological order. But we are at 1018, so we should bring this in for landing. Which means Howard's going to throw a three-pointer right now. No? Okay. <laughs> okay. I don't want to cut it off, but we should wind up. Anything else? Otherwise, then let's close in prayer and carry on. Father God, thank you for uh, the way you have been working. Thank you for the way you continue to work in this body and in this fellowship and the people you have uh, called together and made a church out of. Lord, thank you for the testimonies and hearing how you have been working in people's lives through mountaintop experiences and also, also through uh, valleys and difficulties. Lord, thank you that you are kind. Thank you that you are patient with us. Lord, thank you that you are transcendent and powerful and holy and supreme and majestic. And also that you are imminent and close and tender. And you do touch us. Lord, thank you that you adopt us into your family. Thank you that we can be your little brothers and your little sisters, that we get to wear the robe of your righteousness even though our own actions and our own deeds don't look like it. Yet you credit that all to us. Lord, thank you for uh, vigorous discussion, people who want to take your word seriously, who want to understand world history and the world around them and their families and themselves in a biblical way. And I pray that you would continue to build us up as we consider these things, as we discuss these things. Lord, that anything that I have said this morning or any other time that you would remove from our memory, that you would forgive me for. And yet, those things which are true, those things which point to your eternal glory. Lord, I pray that you would press those truths deep into our heart. Drive that nail all the way in. That we would have the reverence, the love, and the natural obedience that comes out of that for you. Thank you for your kindness. And I pray that you'd be with us as we prepare for corporate worship. I pray that you'd be glorified and that you would feed us as we sing, as we pray, as we read your word. Lord, feed us, strengthen us. Thank you for your kindness. And amen.